And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Alex Stewart. Hi, Alex. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm grand. Fantastic. Well, today we're going to be talking all about the football. Of course, it was in an international break uh, this weekend. We might touch on England a little bit later. But to begin with, of course, the, the, the huge news of last week, and I'm sure still the top story of this week, is the Newcastle takeover by the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia, the Rubin Brothers, and Amanda Staveley. There we go, who is the face of the project. So we'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about Steve Bruce's legacy. Uh, also the players, and I suppose they seem to have rather a lot of money now, so what they might be doing in, in January, and, uh, and the future. You know, and if you're interested in those things, then you really should check out the Athletic. Because Alex, do you know that it was lovely for me to be able to read the Athletic last week when the news broke? Because not only did I have uh, the explainer as to why the deal was suddenly uh, allowed to happen, but also I had a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. I, I read uh, George's interview with Amanda Staveley, and uh, I read uh, some lovely pieces from Chris Woff about what the future might hold for Newcastle. Did you enjoy any of those pieces yourself? There, I did. Yes. Well, there you go. <laughs> From the horse's mouth. Uh, visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO for all of the updates about your team, whether or not you're a Newcastle fan. It really is worth it. And actually, you can get a 30-day free trial by checking out uh, that link. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. So you can uh, try before you buy and uh, have a scout round for 29 days. If you don't like it, then just leave. And it's all fine. But you won't want to leave because it's very, very good. Beyond that, we'll be talking about uh, Manchester United. Because it strikes us that they're not having a very good season. So we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later on. And if we get around to it, if we have time, and I tell you, we're recording this intro before we've actually done the podcast, so we might not. Uh, Loftus-Cheek. We want to talk a little bit about Ruben Loftus-Cheek and also Tammy Abraham, because uh, he played for England over the weekend, and he's having a good season thus far under Mourinho at Roma. So there we go. It's a stacked show today. Thank you for joining us. And now I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of the Public Investment Fund. (laughs) Such a warm embrace. Now... Let's begin with Newcastle, of course, Alex. Uh, and as I said in the introduction, the takeover is complete. We know that the other Premier League clubs, are some of them are unhappy about it. But I imagine it's going to be very difficult for it to be um, reversed at this point. Would, you, we were talking beforehand, weren't we, about now, um, about the sort of wealth of the owners overall within the Premier League and how much of a proportion uh, that the uh, Saudi Arabia's PIF actually takes. Yeah, so they dwarf everyone now. I, I saw a pie chart, pie charts, bad data visualization, but it works in this instance. They account for a, kind of around three quarters, slightly over three quarters of all the combined wealth of the Premier League. Yeah. 
of the owners that own Premier League teams, that is, yeah. Yeah, sure. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean, as, as we were saying before we started recording, that they can just generate all of that money. A lot of that is held in assets and is in other investments and so on. But it does give an indication of the incredible financial clout that Newcastle United can now call upon. And I guess yeah, that, that does mean that it's very easy for, for thoughts to turn to how that club is going to start flexing that and what they're going to do with it and how they're going to proceed. Yeah. Well, l- l- put it this way. Manchester City, previously the wealthiest club, or at least the, the club of the wealthiest owners in the Premier League, their, their owners are worth a uh, an estimated individual net worth of at least uh, £17 billion. Pounds. At least that Sheikh Man saw. Um, it's hard to calculate the, in, the entire thing because there are other people involved there too. But um, Saudi Arabia's PIF fund... <laughs> They could just buy all the other clubs. It's three hundred and fifty billion pounds. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of Andy Carrolls. It's a lot of Andy Carrolls. Anyway, we'll come uh, later to discuss whether Andy Carroll might be returning in glory or not. It's unlikely, isn't it? But before we do that, there's a couple of things I, I wanted to talk about. One, there are some obvious, you know, ethical objections to the deal, which uh, we've laid out pretty clearly on previous Tifa videos. There's one from April 2020 called uh, "Who Are." Newcastle's prospective new owners, written by James Montague, which sort of goes through a list of uh, events that might make Newcastle fans or other uh, a little bit uncomfortable. But we're not going to spend all of today talking about that because we talked about that in detail before. What I wanted to start by talking about today, Alex, was the legacy of Steve Bruce. Because Steve Bruce, uh, in all of the reports so far, and I should clarify that Alex and I do not know uh, stuff behind the scenes here. We don't know what's actually happening with Steve Bruce. But many of the reports seem to suggest that he'll be potentially leaving this week. And I think there seems to be an indication that the new ownership allegedly feel it would be better to sort of break ties almost immediately than it would be to give them a run of games. Now, on the one hand, I understand why that is necessary. If you are the wealthiest club in the Premier League and the wealthiest club in the world, you might have a site set higher, managerially speaking, than Steve Bruce. I do understand that. On the other hand, I feel like it's an odd ending to his Newcastle story, isn't it? Because for a long time, he's been stuck in a pretty impossible position between the fans and the ownership, or the previous ownership. He kept the club in the Premier League while this deal was going through over a long period of time. They finished 12th and 13th, I think. I appreciate there was some terrible form within those seasons themselves, and the uh, last season's finish was really only due to a late rally of wins, and points-wise, they weren't hugely far away from a much more serious situation. But I imagine that he probably won't be remembered all too fondly by Newcastle fans, which at the same time as seeming fair also seems a little bit unfair. Yeah, it's a really odd paradox, isn't it, with him? Because a lot of the football that Newcastle United played was really pretty dire. And I think we even made a video that was titled What If Newcastle United Were an Attacking Side? <laughs> which kind of indicates... Because they have some of the players. Well, I mean, yes and no. It's it's very tricky. Obviously, you've got players like Sam Maxima who are great fun to watch and, and really good value as an entertainment entity as much as a footballing one. Almiron, I think on his day, can be a, a quite a deft ball carrier and can do interesting things in and around the box. But it was always very tricky for Bruce because he was operating for a club where the previous owner, Mike Ashley, really didn't want to put a huge amount of money into things. It sometimes felt that when money was spent, it was spent, I don't want to say ill-advisedly, but but signings like Joe Linton, for example, who I still feel Joe Linton 
could have been a good player under the right set of circumstances and the right tactical setup, but it wasn't going to work for that. And Steve Bruce obviously privileged uh, defence. He privileged long ball football. He he tried to make use of the counter-attacking talents of Sam Maximan, Callum Wilson's surprising turn of pace. I think that video that we did recently showed that he was the third quickest player in the Premier League, which blew me away. One one possible scenario to explain that, I don't know if this is true or not, um, is that he is very fast, yes, but also sometimes he's the only player... Uh, on his team, you know, he, there's no one thirty in thirty meters of him, so yeah. he's probably got quite a lot of space to run into and pick up that pace, get to I, top speed. Yes, sort of like he's beginning at the top of a hill and going. Yes, sure. um, so yeah, I think if you're, I don't know, fans of football teams want to see a certain style of football, don't they? And sometimes that's a style of football which is kind of sold to them as a, a means of achieving success, and it's direct and it's say like Aston Villa and Brentford right they don't take many touches they don't make many passes but they get the ball forwards incredibly rapidly and there's an excitement to that sometimes it's possessional style with a top manager and you can understand what's going on with that Steve Bruce seemed to be in this quandary where he was never really afforded the opportunity or facilitated to make any kind of real interesting tactical changes that would have allowed him to play a better style of football but like you say he did his job right despite the fact that that Newcastle United squad on paper is pretty crap he was able to achieve just below top half finishes two seasons in a row and yes although Newcastle are a big club with a huge fan base if they had been relegated to the championship it's very unlikely that that the PIF would have been that interested in them so he's basically from a footballing perspective, he's afforded Newcastle the opportunity to make this transition and he's going to be the first casualty of it, probably. The other thing, I I don't know if this is true, so I shouldn't be uh, talking about this probably, but (laughs) I seem to remember, obviously it's international break, but last weekend I seem to remember Steve Bruce's interview relating to how before the game it was thought that it was his 1,000th game in charge as a manager, not of Newcastle, but of uh, a football team generally. Uh, and then there was a misunderstanding. Someone told Steve Bruce, no, it was your 999th managerial game. One of them didn't count. And now he might not make it. I mean, I'm sure he'll get another job somewhere else, but it's um, unfortunate timing for him, put it that way. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite cruel, isn't it? Again, I understand why it's probably necessary. And, and I, I'm sure that were I a Newcastle fan and subjected to that, I, I think, to be fair to Newcastle fans, one of the things that... I've noticed uh, many of them have been frustrated by over the last year or, or two is not necessarily the style of play, although that is uh, obviously uh, quite dull to watch at times and not you know hugely rewarding in terms of success, but more the way that Steve Bruce has sometimes spoken in post-match press conferences and handled the team at different times. I think it probably would be a bit annoying, but I can't help but see him as anything other than a kind of friendly uncle. Yeah, and, and a friendly uncle who I think has, you know, he obviously cares passionately about the club and has he also said he gets that when new owners come in they want new like he's the kind of i honestly i really think like the meeting with steve bruce to tell him that he's leaving would be quite easy i think he'd go yep okay no i get it i'm sorry yeah there's there's something slightly kind of when i say kickable about him what (laughs) what i mean is you can envisage him kind of taking 
a difficult series of things happening to him with a kind of steadfast yeah. resignation and just going, okay, yeah, well, that was expected and it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. And, that, and that's... In other words, seemingly from the outside, a great guy. Yeah, basically. Yeah. 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 Well, best of luck to him. Anyway, uh, the other people that we must consider now are, of course, the players. Because, uh, you know, on the one hand, very exciting if you're, you know, Alison Maximan, for example, uh, thinking that, oh, you know, great, the club are finally going to stock the team with good players that can play around me and I'll achieve more. I think there's only one or two players who might be thinking that. I would have thought the vast majority will be thinking, oh dear, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to be here in two years' time. My future at this team is no longer uh, secure, if being secure at a Premier League team is, is, is a thing at all. Right, so I think this is... This opens up a really, really interesting question. And obviously, who is in charge managerially is, is part of that question. But the way in which Newcastle United now go about the process of reshaping the team is a fascinating one. Well, who's safe? Because Callum Wilson is obviously a fantastic striker. Irritatingly, can't keep fit. So it's, a, it's problematic. Alison Maximan, of course, is very, very exciting to watch. He seems to be the reason that, you know, most people who don't support Newcastle might watch Newcastle at the weekend. Um, beyond him, I know uh, they've got a couple of good goalkeepers of the team. Yeah, so Dubravka's really good. Um, Carl Darlow's actually been excellent whenever he's been required to step up. And Freddie Woodman is, is a very promising young in goalkeeping terms. Uh, he's 24, but, you know, for a goalkeeper, that's relatively young still. And in terms of younger players, I mean, there's... Isaac Hayden, I suppose, and there's Sean Longstaff, and yeah, I think I think Longstaff, Longstaffs, plural, mm -hmm. will probably be okay, as much on the basis that they're you know local boys uh, who've come through the academy. It's quite hard to look beyond that. You would assume that Almiron probably Willock, yes, because Willock's a fairly pricey recent acquisition anyway, but Jeff Hendrick. <laughs> it's not a bad team. This is the, this is why I get so confused with Newcastle because no, I think quite it's bad. A bad. But then team. I look through the players. Under, Ryan Fraser, I assume he's injured because he appears to have only had. Oh no, he's a four substitute appearances. Yeah. Than, you, you know, player. just because you've heard of people doesn't mean they're good. No, right? come on. Jamal Lewis was very good. I know that. Uh, yeah, but Jamal Lewis has barely played. No, I know. I don't think he's uh, played that well. I don't think he's been. He, well, he's had one trusted. substitute appearance. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It, you know what. What John it's going to go to is, is who they bring in managerially. Are they going to appoint a director of football like a Stuart Webber type character? Well, Ralph Rangnick was the, the rumours last night. Right. Again, I've no idea whether that's true or not, but now, that was one of the rumours. The thing with Rangnick... Lucien Favre was, last night was apparently uh, the, the... Yeah, the, I saw the that top as of well. The, the, the bookmaking list. I mean, that kind of makes sense. The two um, of them as a pair. Well, I think the thing with Rangnick is that he wants total control over how the club is shaped. Yeah. Um, so he would, in terms of transfer policy, but also in terms of building a, a youth system, that kind of thing. And, and I guess this is the problem. If you, if you take over a new club and you have loads and loads and loads of money, you could afford to go out and pretty much buy a new first-team squad if you wanted to. But that makes absolutely no sense because you should never add maximum more than four or five first team players into a squad at any one time yeah. otherwise the time that it takes for those players to bond and get used to each other particularly if you've got a new managerial appointment at the same time 
it it just is a, a source of of great um, disruption. Well, and not to mention the fact that uh, Newcastle have obviously already for the season named a, a 25, 26 man squad, which they can they have the opportunity to change in in January. But if they were to bring in a large number of players, it's hard to see who on in their squad right now is saleable in January. So you'd think you might end up with players not even being in the Premier League squad for the rest of the season. Yeah, which is entirely possible, actually. I mean, I think I think if you're taking a sensible approach, what you do is you look at using the next five or six months before the next window opens to actually get an infrastructure in place. So you ramp up your... I, d- I don't know what Newcastle's analytics department are like, but you ensure that you invest heavily in that. You get yeah. a good... I like to see things in black and white. That's all I know. That's just... I would assume they like a data department because, again, of the black and white nature of the perspective. The director of football that comes in to run that process is is hugely important, I think. Mm. And, and in some ways, actually, someone like Ranić makes a lot of sense because you get somebody who is used to overhauling an entire system, um, which I think is good. Also, if the PIF have a view to doing what other big, wealthy groups that have got themselves involved in football have done, which is to start buying up other clubs and create a kind of network of clubs, Ranić again, experienced with operating under those circumstances, assuming he gets the autonomy that he craves in order to do that, all of that stuff makes sense. What doesn't make sense is before you have that infrastructure in place and before you start investing in analytics and securing a director of football and working out a long-term strategy for the club, going out and spending £100 million on players, mm-hmm. that that is a stupid thing to do. If Newcastle are going to be safe, which they probably will be, yeah. particularly if they bring in a better manager who can work with some of the better players in that squad, maybe one or two acquisitions like anybody would try and do uh, in January, but yeah. I wouldn't do anything more than that at this point. Well, let's talk about that because you know I've got an idea about January. I know you've got one too, not necessarily in terms of a, a specific player name, but you have an area of the pitch which you think is important to, to cover for Newcastle. I'm going to go first. I think I've got the best one. And I didn't come up with this. I read this, uh, not the reasoning, but I read that this this person's name was linked on Twitter. Now, again, whether that is, uh, whether there are any um, uh, anything behind the reports or whether it's just uh, Twitter rumours, who knows? I like it, though. Anthony Martial. I really think that could work. For, for Here's my reasoning why. I'll give it to you straight, Alex. Uh, he's available, right? <laughs> That's the best reason. The main one, he is available. Um, he's not really playing for Manchester United. Obviously, he scored against Everton the other day, but um, I'm pretty sure that the uh, the team are now open to the idea of um, selling or loaning him out to another team. Uh, he's available. He has Premier League experience. He's scored a number of Premier League goals. He's very good. I d- I'm not sure whether he's uh, better than Callum Wilson. That could be a, a healthy debate to have, but uh, he's certainly better than the vast majority of Newcastle's players. Um, I think he is of the calibre that would excite Newcastle fans at this point in time and is a realistic proposition, right? They're not going to bring in Neymar in January. Everybody knows that. And they're probably not going to spend huge either. Martial is also probably available for a loan if the Newcastle wanted to try that. And he would definitely score goals for them. He's fast, as discussed, based on the way that they play. He's lots of space that he can move into. He's played as a nine for Manchester United. In fact, at the beginning of last season, he was preferred there to Marcus Rashford and actually had a you know, good number of games. And because Callum Wilson just cannot keep his fitness, I really think it's a good idea to have a, a backup striker or, or at least a new starting striker uh, that Callum Wilson can challenge for a spot, particularly a player also that is malleable enough 
that can play on the left wing or can play on the right wing. And you better believe, having played in the Manchester United team for five years, he does know how to defend as well because um, they're not very good, are they, a lot of the time. <laughs> and he's fast. And imagine Martial and Sam Maximan and Callum Wilson as a front three running at your team on a counter-attack. That is a frightening thought. It makes a lot of sense because what you can also then do is have a midfield with a couple of competitive players in it, maybe Longstaff and Hayden, and then you have someone like Joe Willock who is pushing up and you could try and create a kind of slightly less good version of Liverpool of a couple of seasons back. So that midfield solidity with the occasional runner pushing up, a quick, good counter-attacking front three, uh, and a bit of creativity coming from uh, the fullbacks. It makes sense. You know, I think this is a kind of lose-lose situation. <laughs> Thinking about this over the weekend, I went to the pub a couple of times and chatted to some people about this over the weekend. It's a conversation we kind of had before, you know. But as it relates to uh, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia purchasing Newcastle United, as we said at the beginning, there, there are a number of reasons why this is a sort of distasteful one of which is, uh, you know, it is essentially it's a, it's a sovereign wealth fund, but it's basically a, a state investing in a football team. You've already mentioned the, the huge distortion of uh, Premier League ownership wealth now. The Premier League insists that they have proof uh, or will or have, um, you know, uh, legal contract signed, which uh, suggests that if um, there's any, if there is any suggestion that uh, it is the Saudi state that is involved in Newcastle decision making instead of the PIF fund, then uh, they'll be able to put them through the owners and directors test and potentially call the whole thing off. But I see it as sort of impossible to make that connection if they haven't already made it. I don't understand what scenario would occur because the chairman of the public investment fund is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. That's Mohammed bin Salman, top dog of both. It's, I'm not sure how you separate that. It sort of suggests that they don't understand what a sovereign wealth fund is. Sure. Sure. It's literally an investment vehicle for a state. Yes, it's it's strange, isn't it? <laughs> but what um, are you going to do? But also, of course, uh, you know, the death penalty is still uh, applicable in Saudi Arabia. I believe it's the country that uh, applied the death penalty to the largest number of people last year. There is, of course, also uh, the harrowing uh, case of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi dissident Washington Post journalist who was brutally murdered and dismembered in a, in a consulate in Turkey. And there are plenty of, uh, I guess, uh, global organizations that have linked that to Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi Arabia and it sucks it sucks for all those reasons right but then I was having a conversation with someone the other day who was talking about the uh, LBGTQ plus members uh, who live in Saudi Arabia or um, you know minorities who live in Saudi Arabia or people that would really benefit from change and uh, progression there all of all the vast majority of whom are desperate for closer ties with the West because it makes them safer <laughs> in their own home, right? It also makes me think of Qatar and the right sort of action to take. In that scenario, there's a very good argument to say that the World Cup shouldn't be happening there at all. There's another to say that it should, because again, closening political and cultural ties can improve the livelihoods of the people who, or the livelihoods of the lives of the people who, who live in those places who might otherwise be victims of oppression. And you would have thought with uh, Saudi Arabia and Newcastle now being the biggest story in football and probably continuing to be one of the biggest stories for many years to come, the eyes of many people in the world are now on that country in a way that they weren't before. This is why I call it, it's not a lose, it's a lose-lose or a win-win depending on what way you look at it. It's just, unfortunately, uh, I feel very strongly that it's sports washing. Uh, and at the same time, it would appear that 
a strong argument is that embracing the sports washing, or not the sports washing element exactly, but embracing the the sort of closer ties is is a potentially practical way to improve all of the problems that are being discussed as a result of the deal in the first place. There's no sort of correct answer. I really don't buy that at all. You don't buy it at all? <laughs> well, no, on the basis that the way I would look at it is to say that all this has shown is that in spite of the fact that all of these things are happening, they still can flex sufficient financial sure, muscle to be allowed to do it. Money, 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 money. Right. Yeah. So if, if I'm if I'm a state who wishes to sports wash, uh, I'm going to look at it and go, ultimately what matters is how much money I've got. The people of your state would be so boring. <laughs> Yeah, quite possibly. It would be the least uh, the, the least, least exciting state. Least jazzy place yeah. in the world to live. Um but it would be nice. Yeah. Um, sure. And and I think yes, I, I I do understand that, you know, for example, with the Qatar situation, if if it wasn't the World Cup happening there that was causing the deaths of migrant workers, migrant workers would probably still be dying, but they'd just be putting up condos instead. And people wouldn't be paying attention to it. That is wrong in itself because people should be paying attention to that stuff irrespective of why it's happening. Uh, it is wrong, but it's also real. It's also just real. Yeah, sure. No, I appreciate that. I, I just, I find it incredibly depressing and dispiriting. Sure. And I don't, I don't think it will cause any, but I mean, ultimately, you know, the Saudi Arabian state has sufficient clout because of trade deals with the UK to be able to say that this is what we want to happen. A lot of the resolution of this deal coming through was to do with the resolving of a piracy issue, to do with broadcasting rights. Like yeah. it's, it's not about cleaning house and oh, and sure. making sure that you know LGBT communities have better rights in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I believe it's probably it was probably never about that. No. Yeah. Um. I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a slightly different thing. But uh, buying a football club versus hosting a World Cup, the the eyes of the world are on you in a different way. And probably a little bit less and less literally uh, when the tournament takes place in Qatar. But one of the things, of course, that's happened in Qatar, however successful you think it's been, however much you believe that it is the case, there have been changes to the Kafala sponsorship system. There have been changes to, again, uh, apparently been changes to the living conditions of uh, many migrant workers. Also many scenarios in which that's very clearly not the case, in which those changes, uh, uh, legal changes that they've made, haven't been followed through with the, with the wider population yet either. But it's certain to say, I think, that changes were made as a result of people insisting that changes were made as a result of people looking at the country as a result of them having a World Cup. This is, this is why I wonder whether maybe something similar could happen with Saudi Arabia. The other reason I say that is because there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> and, I, and it makes me feel totally honestly better to think that maybe that is a thing which could happen. I can understand that. But anyway, Steve Bruce is probably going to lose his job, so, you know, our prayers go out to him as well. Of course. Good luck, Brucey. What else have we got? Oh, you didn't give me a uh, January. We sort of took a big old uh, detour there, didn't we? We took a global detour. But now come back to Newcastle in January and tell me where you think they need to strengthen the most. Uh, it's not going to sound as fun now after the conversation we've just had. But, no, you know, it's not. Changing gears, shifting gears. Shifting <laughs> gears. Um, so 60% almost of the passes that Newcastle have made that have led to shots have come from either Matt Ritchie or Alan Sam Maximum. Mm. Um 
So they have a the state massive... of Alex really doing a good job here <laughs> to further the <laughs> reputation of its people. Um, yeah, they have a massive over reliance on a couple of players for creativity. Um, it's the same with final third passes, although you can also add in Sean Longstaff and weirdly Fernandez, the centre back to that. So I think they need somebody who can progress the ball from central midfield or slightly higher and play around or behind those strikers and get the ball into better positions to release. You, you, Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Maybe. I don't think he's maybe attacking enough. I know we'll talk about him in a bit. Possibly. I think Joe Willock's good at doing those things, though. You don't think so? No, Joe Willock is, is about making late runs into the box, mostly. That's where his greatest threat comes from. He's really good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't think... But then, I, as you said, if, if you... If you go with your plan and and take in Martial, then actually, you know, using Richie as, as a fullback actually works quite well in that regard. You've got another reasonable progressive passer in midfield and you kind of bypass the need for a creative midfield. In the short term, your suggestion makes sense. I mean, can you imagine if they did bring in, hypothetically, Lucien Favre, the right. amount of time it would take to sort of transition the side as it is now, playing under Steve Bruce to one that, looks like a Lucien Favre team. Yeah, I, I, the weird thing about Lucien Favre is I'm not sure what a Lucien Favre team really looks like. I just like. assume it was synonymous with uh, Dortmund, you know. Well, a degree of pressing, not as kind of manically high pressing as some German teams are. Um, certainly there was a like a f- pressing fall off between the sort of Klopp era and, and what Rose is now trying to introduce. Favre's real ability seems to be a consistent one to get his teams to massively overperform their expected goals in ways that <laughs> not appear almost magical. Yeah. And no one can quite understand how he does it. Mm. But I think he's the kind of savvy, adaptive coach who isn't necessarily going to win you something, but is going to be able to apply sensible principles that work transitionally towards some sort of identity going forwards in the longer term. Yeah. Okay. Well, we await the news to see what happens. Of course, we're recording this on a Monday and it's being released on a Tuesday. Any number of things could happen in the meantime. Uh, but uh, for now, let's have a break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, what a lovely break that was. Now, Manchester United, uh, this is our discussion, Alex. I've written here, Manchester United are not having a good season so far. Now, the reason I say that is um, because they're not having a good season so far. (laughs) That's the main thing. There's a few items on our list here to discuss. Solskjaer, what's the verdict? We'll do that. A little bit of Jadon Sancho, what's happening there. Talking about the Ronaldo transfer too, and central midfielder, of course, which uh, again is the conversation that you cannot not have when you're discussing Manchester United. Let's begin with Solskjaer. He's managed over 400 games in his managerial career. He's been a manager, I think, for 12 years. He's not a new manager or a young manager or a manager that's still... I mean, all managers are still developing, but he's not one that's still significantly developing. He's not growing into his shoes, you know. These shoes are his shoes. 
So what's your verdict? Because he's been at Manchester United now for longer than Mourinho was. A long time, three seasons almost. Yeah, a long time. And 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 United haven't won a trophy for a long time. The, yes, in fact, the last one would have been the uh, Europa League under Mourinho. I think so, yeah. But it's like 1,600 days. And yeah, it feels like some of the issues that we've talked about before just don't seem any closer to being fixed, by which we mean their ability to transition from defence to attack in a measured way and the coaching of particular attacking patterns in the final third. Yes, United have lots of good attacking players, and that means that there are sufficient like moments of skill and and uh, you know game changing to be able to win most fixtures, but it also points to the fact that either, well, I think it's a combination. I think I think the the, the coaching system there, and I don't want to put all the blame at Solskjaer's feet mm. because obviously he works with a coaching team. Sure. We've got there Paul to, McKenna. We've got Michael Carrick. We've got the assistant coach whose name is escaping me. Sure, from I, Burnley. Mine also. No, um, Mike Phelan. There we Mike go. Mike Phelan. So it's yeah, it's not just Solskjaer. There, there's there's also the translation and implementation of those ideas, assuming there there are clear ideas. I also think that the the transfer approach continues to be a bit weird. Like I mm, get why I disagree with that, with the exception of the Ronaldo transfer. Yeah, sure, but I I think okay, well, we're going to talk about central midfield, defensive mm. midfield. Mm. That is such a yawning no, that's gap true, yeah. that it has not been addressed uh-huh. for such a long time. Yes, And I don't think you can just keep adding players who are going to be good in the final third and no. assume that somehow a cascade of vibes <laughs> will see you to winning no, I agree the Premier with that. League title. Now, one of the things I'm sad about today, Alex, is that JJ isn't here because JJ and I have a sort of ongoing argument about Solskjaer, as I believe you do too. Uh, JJ is obsessed with the idea that actually he's fine and he's underrated based on the fact that everyone thinks he's rubbish, so it's not difficult to be underrated. JJ doesn't think that Solskjaer is an amazing manager and in comparison to the obviously amazing managers is not the same pedigree. But uh, he certainly is more more willing to defend his coaching. No, I think he's fine. What's fine, though? What's fine for Manchester United? Well, this is the question, isn't it? Because Would he get a job at another Premier League team? Um, based on his reputation and the fact he's coached at Manchester United, yes, probably about two-thirds of them. No. Yeah, sure. Uh, no. I I refuse Premier to League owners it. are mostly... I don't want to say... No. I think... I think there's a lot of not great Which club? decision making in football. Which club? None of the ones that matter. No, no, but would t- give me an example of a club. I don't could, know. Everton. <laughs> he could. He would never ever be an Everton manager. I don't know. I, he, I, could, he couldn't. What do you mean he couldn't? He's not good enough to be the Everton manager. Yeah, I, I think I think you're overweighting the degree to which management groups make intelligent decisions in uh, football i really don't okay i really do i honestly uh, the everton's manager is rafa benitez he's great right but it, it's Imagine a, replacing rafa benitez details man experienced manager winner of things yeah but with Solskjaer. winner of things ages ago i mean i'm not having a dig at benitez benitez i think is a good coach but there's there's a coterie of clubs that are very smart and make good decisions pretty consistently. 
and those clubs have the three Give me best club. managers. One more club. I don't know. I don't know. I I would say probably not Leicester. A hundred percent not Leicester. Because, but but also you have to look at the fact that there's a difference between saying hypothetically would this person get hired and would they not get hired for reasons other than footballing reasons. Do you think he is of the standard to be the Everton manager? I think he's fine. I don't know what that means. I don't. Your, well, I mean, your question is so baggy that it doesn't. Well, if you were an Everton supporter... That's a completely different question. Okay, fine. Let me see how I can frame this. Everton, what Everton really needs... <laughs> I'm just need, going to equivocate He's not it. what Everton need. No. He's, what you're saying is you think that the poor decision-making at Premier League teams mean that he could get a job anywhere, right? But let's assume... Yes. Let me ask you this hypothetical. Right. If every Premier League team was managed uh, from an ownership level, from a board level, sensibly and well... Yes. Would he get a job at another Premier League team? That's the question. That's the answer. It's right there. That's all that we need to know. I, I, I would say not on mm. that basis. Yeah. But that's Why not? not because I think a balance of the fact that he would probably cost too much now having managed Manchester United and the fact that he doesn't show sufficient ability in any one area to make him worth a gamble. By which I mean some coaches are, I don't know, Thomas Frank, right, has a very, very clear style of football. It might not work with everybody. Bielsa you might put in the same bracket. But there is a way of doing things, a charisma and a personality that goes with that, that if the players buy into it, it can be incredibly effective. For sure, yes. There are managers who are just big, big figures in the game. Deservedly so. Mm -hmm. Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp. Jose Mourinho. Jose, yeah, I suppose. He's a big figure. To, in a, the game. to a degree, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's sort of tarnished his <laughs> reputation in England recently, but yes. Um, you have people who are clearly tactically incredibly astute, like yes. Thomas Tuchel. Uh -huh. Is there any one thing that you would look at Solskjaer and say, if you were to bracket Solskjaer as an ex manager, mm -hmm. like a a youth focus manager, a yeah. player development manager, a pressing wizard. Like, you can't say he's any one it of those things. It would have been things. youth focused, uh, but I don't think it is anymore. I, I'm not sure that it is. I, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I, think, I think actually maybe Solskjaer could have got a job at Newcastle United, actually. <laughs> but that's, maybe. But they are, yeah. Maybe. Um, so I, I don't know. It's really, really difficult to say. He's not even in the sort of David Moyes, you know, forging something that's greater than the sum of its parts no. type of manager. Yeah. If anything, he's somehow managed to not do that. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. He is fine, but I don't think he's good at anything. I think if you, if you, and maybe this is again unfair. We're comparing, comparing someone against the absolute best is a little bit unfair, but then. It's Manchester United. But it's Manchester so United. It be, That's right? the point. I feel like if you had Thomas Tuchel or Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp or Maurizio Pochettino in charge of that football team, they'd be winning things. They're a really good team. They've got lots of good players. And also, they would have bought a defensive midfielder. I, I think also you have to look at most of that list and go, if they had Jurgen Klopp or Pep Guardiola or Thomas Tuchel, then... 
those other clubs wouldn't have them. Sure. And that makes those other clubs weaker. Yes. And so that does make it easier for Manchester United. Yes. And that's one of the reasons yes. why you'd acquire a really good manager is sure. to stop somebody else having them. Yeah. Um, Pochettino, obviously, the only one to whom that doesn't apply. But I I don't know. It's, it's really hard to know the degree to which, again, that, that trying to... Because United went through that spell, right, with with Moyes and Van Gaal and Mourinho, where it felt like the soul was sucked out of things a little bit and, and everything got quite stale and people got quite sad. And so part of the strategy clearly behind the scenes was to re-engender a sense of affection toward the club among the fans. And Solskjaer and, has done that. He's rejuvenated the team in that regard. I think the right. one element you would point to, to go back to what you were saying before, of his uh, managerial ability. He's a feel-good manager. He's like a culture manager. He managed, yeah. he managed the culture extremely well, and he could only do that because he was, you know, a star player from the team uh, years ago and was already adhered to the fans. But you you would, in that, and I was just going to say, some of the acquisitions, I think, like like a Jadon Sancho or Ronaldo, are part of that process. Sure. Obviously with very different footballing outcomes. But, yes, you see, I, I would say a culture manager would be somebody like, uh, the best examples of culture managers are people like Carlo Ancelotti. Yeah. It's Zidane as well, to I an think extent. I think did that. I think Klopp did that, but he also did much more than that. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but I think if you're, you know, even with Zidane or Ancelotti, there is a feel for the game and a feel for subtle tactical tweaks. Mm-hmm. If you look at Ancelotti, he has consistently been tactically flexible. He's consistently built teams around what his best players can do. Yeah. I'm not saying that he's a shit tactician, but he's not a Rafa Benitez, but he's better at those things than Solskjaer is. Yeah. As is Zidane. Carlo Ancelotti would make a good Manchester United manager. I think he probably would. I think Zidane would probably make a good Manchester United manager. Maybe. Um, Maybe. Because I think there is a greater degree of respect afforded to a player like that. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, while Zidane might not have always set his teams up in the first instance to tactically dominate games... And obviously, a lot of the time, one because they just had the best players. He is very good at in-game tactical tweaks. And Man United have really good players. And Man United have really good players. Let's talk about one of those players, though, right? In terms of, I tell you what, no, let's have a break first, and then we'll come back. Ah, we're back from the break. Now, picking up, one of the players I want to talk about is Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, incoming transfer. Um, He's played a few games now. I think we've seen uh, the impact that he's going to have on the team. I am making an early call. I may have already said this, actually, even earlier than now. But my my opinion this early on, Alex, happy to be proven wrong, is that this was a bad footballing decision and that Cristiano Ronaldo sets a blossoming team back by a year or two based on how differently he plays to Cavani as a first example, but also, I think, based on what I believe he did at Juventus, which was score many goals but also potentially prevent many other sorts of goals from happening. I know that is coming into a sort of complicated argument you could make about any player, right? But because of how Ronaldo plays, because of who Ronaldo is, because everybody, apart from seemingly Mason Greenwood, wants to pass him the ball, I believe that means that if you have him up front or wherever he so chooses to go in the attacking third of the pitch, uh, his decision it may open up new possibilities for for goals that otherwise wouldn't be scored because he's a fantastic finisher and arguably uh, better at Cavani than doing that, even though the Cavani is a fantastic finisher. 
but also he closes off all sorts of other possibilities. One of the things that made Manchester United exciting to watch when Cavani was playing was that Cavani created all the space for the players behind him. Now, another person on our list that we were going to discuss is Jadon Sancho and wondering why he's had a difficult, rocky start to a Manchester United career. One of the reasons I really believe is because he's playing behind Ronaldo, who doesn't do any of the work defensively that Haaland would have done when Sancho was playing with him, that Cavani does uh, when he's playing, that even Rashford or Martial or Greenwood would do from the nines, but it completely changes the way that the team plays. And whilst Ronaldo, I think, is definitely going to be the top scorer for the team this season, barring any injury, I think he's also going to prevent a huge number of goals, of different sorts of goals that could have otherwise been scored if he wasn't there. And I think it's an issue. I agree completely. Great. Let's move on. (laughs) Uh, Tell me a little bit about Jadon Sancho then, uh, and maybe within the context of this uh, Ronaldo situation. Yeah, well, I think think there's a couple of things that are interesting to note about Sancho. He, He has looked good in spots right I think I think a lot of what he did against Everton when he came on in the second half where he did actually play with Ronaldo for that period uh, was very encouraging I think the problem that that he has is that United are not playing as on the transition and as a counter-attacking side in the same way that Dortmund did yeah they don't have I mean the same way that they were last season uh to a degree also yes I think that Sancho thrives off the sort of uh, counter-pressing situations where the ball is recovered quickly and he is then able to run against a defence that's not organised. I think he thrives because he's so good at working out which spaces to attack. The more chaotic that scenario that he's confronting is, the more spaces there are for him to choose from. I think when you have, I mean, yes, like, Holland obviously is an absolute monster and, and makes runs that terrify literally any defence. And while, while Ronaldo does have a degree of physicality and is still pretty rapid, because he has a tendency to drop off and stay deeper and not transition into a counter-attack as quickly, mm-hmm. Sancho is kind of waiting for that to catch up a little bit. Yeah. And most of the good moments where Sancho was in possession, it was that he was found in a good spot he was able to do something, but then it didn't quite result in in something occurring because there wasn't a run in the same way that Holland would be making that like absolute bombard run into the six-yard box, yeah. ready to skittle anybody that got in his path. Yeah. I think Sancho and Cavani together would be really exciting because Cavani's, Cavani's penalty box movement is amazing and his pressing his ability to work to close down angles to force opposition defenders into mistakes and hurried clearances and that sort of thing is exactly the circumstance that Jaden Sancho thrives off I mean it's interesting to note we've got a video coming out at some point where we look at some of these things in greater detail I can tell you now that video is released on Friday of this week Friday the 15th of October okay so without without being too spoilery about it He's getting the ball about as much as he did in terms of receiving passes mm. as he did at Dortmund last season. Yeah. So it's not that when he's on the pitch, he's being ignored, mm. but the circumstances in which he's receiving the ball and the way the team are playing as a whole does not suit him yet. And I think your point about how if he'd come into the team at the beginning of last season 
we would be seeing a player who was probably hitting double figures in goals and assists already. Yeah. Not already as in this season, but sure. he would have already achieved that. Yeah. Last season. It's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, like, I, like I said, I agree with you on, on all of the points you make from a footballing perspective of, about Ronaldo. I do think there is that buzz around the, the changing room in terms of how he is... Well, Pogba's contract is a... Is a Pogba's contract is a good example of this. Yeah, and also the, the, the professionalism, the, the preparation, the nutrition, all of those things. Like, he is, at least in the context of being a professional footballer, quite a good role model. And so younger players potentially would, would learn from that. But I think yeah. if you've got... a v- <sighs> If you've got a player who is that age, who is going to cost that much, and who is potentially going to impede the progress of other players or adjust the tactical setup of the team to that degree, yeah. to me it doesn't make any sense. Get him in the bin. That's what I say. I would put him straight in the put bin with an enormous bin. amount of pleasure. <laughs> Get him in the bin. Yeah. Anyway, the other thing we wanted to talk about, the final thing uh, to, to mention about Manchester United as we reach the end of our podcast today, is a defensive midfielder or a central midfielder. Of course, this has been an issue ever since Roy Keane left. Not actually, you know, Michael Carrick was very good, wasn't he? Just a different kind of player. He was just a different kind of player, people. Uh, It's an issue and uh, it's discussed constantly. Now, the reason I uh, semi-disagreed with you about your point on recruitment before was because Manchester United needed to buy three players this summer, right? They bought three players. They needed a centre-back. They bought Rafa Varane. Very good. He's very good. Yeah, and he's had a good start. Uh, they needed a right winger. They bought Jaden Sancho. They haven't played him there, which is confusing, but I, I assume is because of Mason, uh, Mason Greenwood just can't be displaced from the team, which is, you know, again, very exciting for fans. And they bought uh, Ronaldo, who's not, not a central midfielder. So in terms of the recruitment, two out of three, pretty good. And the summer, the transfer window for Manchester United, one of the best uh, in the last sort of five, ten years, I think. Very, you know, very uh, focused, with the exception of Ronaldo. And uh, again, for all the reasons you said before, it's understandable why they did that and wouldn't want Ronaldo to go to, to Manchester City, get him in the bin. But it's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad to watch them because it's just... Everyone in the world knows. People who don't watch football know. Like, it's just... Yeah. They have an embarrassing amount of riches up front. And just no way of getting the ball to them. There's there's no purer form of resignation than a Manchester United fan on Twitter complaining about the lack of a DM. Yeah. And it's been the case, like you say, for for a number of years. Yes, obviously, you have different types of defensive midfielder and... and I think the issue that United have is they need both effectively. You can get a certain amount of covering and screening and tackling from Fred and McTominay. You can get a very reduced and occasional ball progression from Nemanja Matic, Mm -hmm. although he moves like an oil tanker now. But the idea that there is no player that can effectively screen and affect transitions from defence to midfield and spray the ball around and progress passes and control tempo. Yeah. Those players exist. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. Who are they? Not not ones that would be right for Manchester United, but who's a good example of the sort of player that you're talking about? Um, I mean, a really good example in the Premier League currently would be Rodri. Right. Um, yeah. uh, the other really good example of a type of defensive midfielder in the Premier League would be Fabinho. Yeah. So they're, they're probably in the Premier League at the moment the two best examples of the two types. Okay. 
And they do the passing as well as the uh, defensive work. So, so Rodri is better at passing, but can ably cope defensively. Yeah, Fabinho is the reverse. Is the reverse yeah. of that? But okay. they're both so good at, at both aspects of the game that yes, they're they're outstanding. And I think those players, if you want, you can also add a bit of press resistance, and then you get someone like Ibrahim Sangare. Yeah, Yay. yeah, um, big time. But why not? Let's go for it. You know, I I just, I feel like part of the issue that, that Manchester United have in their attacking third in terms of not having those patterns and not having necessarily something more structured and organised than we have five really good players in the attacking half, yeah. let's see what happens, yeah. is that the pattern by which the ball gets to them, unless it is Luke Shaw running through the left-hand side or Pogba dropping off and firing passes around. Sure. It, that's not organised either. So by the time it... Like, you don't, if you don't know how the ball's going to enter the final third in terms of how that build-up occurs, then you're already working off a less-than-solid foundation. Yeah, I agree. And that's what they need. They need someone like uh, Cooper Minas, for example, who's gone to Atalanta mm. or... I don't know, maybe Sangare. I mean, there's, you there's tell lots me where, of examples. Uh, what's his name? Yeah. The, 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 the Dutch player that was linked with United for a very long time. Strootman, didn't you say he'd gone somewhere recently? He, well? He's now at Cagliari. Mm. Yes. Yes. What was his first name, Strootman? Kevin. Kevin Strootman. Yeah. I remember that story. Yeah. He, was, he wasn't far behind the Schneider years. Yeah, that, that sort of deep-lying architect of what goes on in front mm. is, is crucial. Teams, you know, this is why sure. when Barcelona were as good as they were, they had Sergio Busquets as the orchestrator, the person who could, yes, break up play and shield the ball and so on, but would be able to just pick those passes that make the rest of the attacking line facing forwards with everything in front of them to then be able to work out how to construct that move. Yeah. He was the person who penetrated that first, even the first two lines of, of a defence. And, and that's that's what United lack yeah. more than anything. Okay. Well, we're sort of near the end of the podcast now. What, what do you think? Would you prefer to briefly discuss uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek or Tammy Abraham? Because we only have time for one. Uh, you're in charge, Joe. You can decide. Well, let's do Tammy Abraham because, of course, England played this weekend. Now, in my notes here, I've said, did he play for England? Question mark. And then you've said, yes, he did. <laughs> yes, I yes, was at a stag do. He started the Uncle Damien's stag do, the old Red Lion. Oh, is that the finest pub in London to watch football? Oh, though? be sure it is the finest indeed. Ah, and we had a lovely time that. there. And uh, I accidentally stayed quite late. They were staying for the boxing, which was very, very late. Tyson Fury against Deontay Wilder, I believe. <laughs> I don't know. People Not, kept saying this. I don't watch boxing, and so. I thought, you know, I've heard of one of them. Uh, anyway, they were fighting. There was a fight, not in the pub, on the television. Uh, the, the, but the, the stag do, get this, it started uh, 7.30. First right. thing on the list, England Andorra. Yeah. <laughs> what a great start, start to as a you mean to go do. on. Yeah. I arrived late and I tried to watch the football, but I ended up chatting to Uncle Mick about folk music. Great time. Uh, so I didn't watch any of this game. Fair. And yeah. I did leave before the boxing, just for any interested listeners. I didn't stay until the the fighting happened. Um, so what would you like to know? Well, I'd like to know, I mean, I've heard that he's doing very well at Roma under M Mourinho. And of course, that, that, I presume that form led to him being uh, called up to the England team. You really like him as a player, I know. I do like him. Um, so the first reason is something that Seb highlighted 
uh, when we were talking last summer about uh, potential transfer moves. And Abraham is a player who's played under a, a number of different managers in loan spells and so on. And he's, shows, he's not on loan, is he? He's been bought. Uh, or is he on loan? At Roma? Yeah. I, I actually don't I'll know look while you talk. That. I'll look while you talk. Um, but what that means is there is a degree of tactical flexibility and intelligence there. The role that he's performing at Roma is is kind of twofold. So he does drop off particularly into the wide areas to try and link play. Occasionally, he will then turn and produce a couple of really lovely passes. If, if anyone can catch the um, Roma-Lazio derby, um, some of his link-up play in that is, is really, really subtle and lovely and a couple of chips and through passes. But he is also then able to break forwards uh, and get into the box. His goal against Andorra came from a lovely piece of movement where he was between two centre-backs. The centre-back to his left noticed that he was free and beckoned the other centre-back towards him. And as that centre-back came towards him, he then accelerated very quickly past while the guy's kind of body position was all wrong and got on the end of a cross. The Baton play. Uh, yes, mm. yes. Baton's. We discussed this before, and I got it wrong. Well, the Baton Baton switch. Baton switch. But that's not really a Baton switch. This, this, is, really. this is this is more of a Baton play. Sure. Okay, I will take your word for that. Don't know if that's um, he made a couple of good clearances from corners with his head as well. Yeah. He tackled back a few times. He just. There is a certain dynamism and athleticism to the way he plays that makes him a more mobile and interesting centre yes. forward. You would think to look at him that he that he was good, at, you know, heading the ball and stuff, and not so good at close control, as is the old stereotype of the tall player. But not true. Not true. well. No, he's a little bit like that. I think his, I think his movement in the box is really interesting, mm-hmm. um, and I think his ability to to do more in a kind of crafted way with link-up play than you might expect for a tall centre-forward. Is he is better than Olivier fun. Giroud? Not yet. Mm. Um, maybe in the future. Mm. Um, I'd say he's he's more dynamic than Giroud. He doesn't have Giroud's finesse yet. Yeah. Um, okay. But there's nothing to say that that can't happen. And some of the passes, like I say, some of the passes against Lazio were... There were two or three that were really sumptuous, technically yeah. executed brilliantly. Mm. So this is this is absolutely not your kind of stereotypical, you know, six foot three striker who's just going to run into the box and throw himself onto things. Should we play guess the fee? Um, I mean, he's still relatively young. Fee. Guess the fee that Roma paid for him. Oh, that Roma paid for him. Mm-hmm. Um, twenty five, thirty, thirty six million pounds. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for playing Guess the Fee. Better luck next you time. You lost. You did lose. Yeah, you did lose. Yeah. Okay, fine. Well, that's Tammy Abraham. That's good. Yeah, I like him. Good stuff. Right, that's the end now. Thanks to producer Don over there. Having a nice day. Nice time, Don. Don said sure. <laughs> Thanks, of course, uh, to uh, Jacques de Bon for uh, proceeding over this, this here hearing. And, of course, to Alex Stewart for all of the talking he did. I've been Joe Devine. This is the end. Thank you. And goodbye. Goodbye.